All right, welcome everybody. My name is Caitlin. I'm part of our young adults teaching staff, and I am very thankful that I get a chance to unfold God's word with you today. I've actually been marveling all week at God's sovereign timing to put this exact passage before us at this specific time. Think about it. We are on the eve of a political election in the midst of a season of upheaval beyond anything we've all personally experienced. You're probably feeling that same weight because we've been surrounded with political shouting matches, each side yelling at us, come, let us rally around our plans and our purposes to steer our destiny this way or that. Oh, and by the way, if you give those other guys power, we're all doomed. Tomorrow, the news coverage will feature Decision 2020. And we might feel any range of emotion at that, wondering, after tomorrow, who will be in control? Who will have power to determine the course of this nation? Whose plans and purposes will prevail? And it's into the noise and emotion and questioning of these things that God raises a banner over us this week in Genesis 9 through 11. Our God is sovereign. The creator of all things reigns over all things. And we're going to see this week that regardless of the resolve of men or even nations, God's plans to accomplish his purposes by his absolute power will prevail. That's a truth from this week that we can hold on to. God's sovereign purposes will prevail. So before we dive in, let me pray for us, and then we'll head into Genesis 9.18. Father, I am so, so thankful that you seek and pursue our hearts with your truth. You give us your word that we might have an anchor And I pray this week that for everyone that's hearing these words, that you would strengthen them and that you would hold them with the truth that you are sovereign. Your ultimate purposes and plans for all things um, are, are so vast and so great. And I pray that you would just be shaping our hearts that we might um, rest in that truth, that no matter how noisy our week gets and the range of emotions that we'll feel, that all of those will Um, be held by the truth that your will for good and wisdom and justice, it will prevail. Jesus, we ask these things in your name. Amen. All right, so we will have two divisions today. First, we will see in Genesis 9, 18 through 29, that God's sovereignty is displayed through Noah and his sons. And then we'll see in chapters 10 through 11, 9, God's sovereignty displayed in the scattering of the nations. These passages where we're at this week, they're actually going to conclude the first unit of Genesis, which is chapters 1 through 11. We're about to transition from watching God's work on that global scale, and it's going to narrow in on his promised blessing of one family line, the family of Abraham, in chapter 12 next week. Now, last week we left off in chapter 9 with this kind of new beginning after the flood. We saw Noah worshiping God and receiving that unconditional covenant. But, I don't know if you felt that same flashback from Genesis 3, there was that sudden spiral of the fall, and this week I feel like we were confronted with that again. We see that sin still reigns in every human heart, 
and the state of mankind collectively is still bent towards rebellion against God. These realities here, they are tragic. Yet it's in the context of humanity's failure that God is sovereignly initiating his rescue plan for the saving of many lives through our only hope, his son, Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bible, we're looking first at chapter 9, and we'll start in verse 18. In verses uh, 18 through 19, we're introduced to the main characters of our story and their place in the world's history. All the people who were scattered over the earth came from Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then even in the very first verse, we get this kind of odd side note. Ham was the father of Canaan. That hints at the focus of this story. We're told right off the bat, Ham, the father of Canaan. And given the fact that there are, I think, 16 grandsons of Noah referenced in this section, uh, that comment should really alert us. The story has something important to tell us about Canaan. But first, we're going to zoom in on this occurrence between Noah and his sons. If you felt startled and confused by what to make of this story, you're definitely not alone. All scripture is equally true, but not is all equally straightforward, and I think this one leaves a lot of room for questions. While there are a lot of intriguing questions that we can uh, think through, we, we're going to see if we can focus in on God's purposes in preserving this account for the original audience and for us. So, if we were beginning to put Noah, that uniquely righteous man of bold obedience, on some kind of pedestal of perfection, it really does come crashing down with this depiction. We see in verse 20, he plants a vineyard, he drinks an excessive amount of wine, becomes drunk, and lies uncovered in his tent. We can see throughout history that human tendency is to airbrush our historical heroes, but God's word does not need that kind of embellishment. Jesus Christ alone is the only righteous hero who can bring restoration from all of humanity's sin. And while Noah's actions are not commented on as the focus of this story, I think there are some warnings we can take away. We know from across God's word that drunkenness is a sin. It allows room for our sinful nature to just drive us. And it's never driving us in the direction of God's righteousness. It's always driving us in the direction of indignity. So Noah's state here reminds us, even the most mature among us will never outgrow our utter dependence on the Lord to walk in the beauty and safety and joy of God's holiness. Moving from there, we see two very different responses to Noah's condition in verses 22 through 23. First, we see Ham saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. This one sentence is fairly sparse, and it's given rise to this wave of questioning about how much we should read between the lines. But I think even at face value, we see a lot here. We already saw with Adam and Eve, their nakedness and their shame for sin are linked and God's response was to mercifully provide a covering. But here, Ham's reaction is one of dishonor. 
likely a jeering, maybe enjoying the degradation of his father, an authority figure. And then he goes and publicizes his shame outside of the tent to his brothers. There's no attempt made to restore or protect Noah's dignity. Now, Ham's sin is then amplified in contrast with the reaction of his brothers. Look at this very great detailed emphasis on the steps that they took to not only cover their father, but not even glimpse his nakedness. They took a garment, they laid it on their shoulders, they walked backwards, and they covered the nakedness of their father. It even goes further. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. Shem and Japheth took great care to cover, not further expose, their father. This action depicted here, it actually hit really surprisingly close to home for me. Um, As I was thinking about the work that I do with medically and mentally fragile population. It's heavy, but I frequently encounter patients who are in similar vulnerable and exposed positions, unable to protect their own dignity. And I've seen and admired very beautiful reactions of grace from support staff who do everything in their power to treat these people with honor and lay down their own pride to help restore or cover them. We're seeking to regard each human with dignity, not because of their status or their actions, but because of whose image they're made in. To my dismay, though, I have also seen reactions like Ham's, where those who have the ability to restore instead jeer and laugh and publicize what they encounter to others for the sake of of some kind of entertainment. It's just such a feeling of disgust to observe that kind of response. And while we might raise an eyebrow at Noah's own actions that led to his circumstance, we also know that we who are sinners have received mercy and are then called to extend that mercy to others. In all of our actions, no matter the context, we aim to restore, not further tear down. So pause and think, how is God's mercy and grace towards you and your sin motivating you to respond with restorative mercy to those in your family or workplace or church? Now things get quite interesting in verse 24 when Noah wakes up from his wine. I can imagine he's probably in very rough condition, and his response here gives us some challenging layers to think through. It says, He knew what his youngest son had done to him, and then said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. Then he goes on to say, Bless the Lord the God of Shem. And he states, May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, all the while emphasizing throughout that Canaan, Ham's son, will not share in this blessing, but be their servant. I think there's several very surprising components to this response that raise a lot of questions. First, We've seen God pronounce blessings and curses already throughout Genesis. He blesses Adam and Eve. Most recently, he blessed Noah and his sons. And then we've also seen him curse. He's cursed the serpent. He's cursed the ground. He's cursed Cain. But now we see a man, and at that, likely one who's still hung over, and he's pronouncing such blessings and curses himself. 
What is the nature of these? Is this some kind of odd outburst of a humiliated father against his seemingly uninvolved grandson? If we pan out to see how blessings and curses are used across Genesis, there's a couple fascinating patterns that appear, and they can help us understand not even just this passage, but actually some really cool themes across Genesis. Definitely would recommend you look it up if you're curious about that. Since we can't take a tour of all of the book of Genesis right now, let me just note a few themes. One, while many blessings and curses throughout Genesis are spoken directly by God, Noah's words mark the first of many spoken by humans. These are often uh, spoken by patriarchs over their descendants. In the case where it is a human that speaks a blessing or a curse, it is only shown as effectual by God's confirmation. Either his spoken word or the revelation of providential events uh, throughout the future. It's not some kind of human magic or power, but God's sovereign will that establishes such prophetic statements. And what's the substance or nature of these blessings and curses? One high-level definition I found states that a blessing is God's bestowing of a privilege, right, responsibility, or favor upon a person or a family line, or even creation itself. Now, in contrast to this relationship of favor with God, God's curse represents the divine shattering of relationship in judgment for sin. So, for example, earlier we saw Cain cursed and cut off from God's presence, and now we see Canaan cut off from the blessing of Noah's other descendants. We need to take this definition extremely seriously, as this curse of Canaan in particular has been grievously abused throughout history, in particular to promote or justify enslavement of those of African descent. It is God's word and his authority that governs and confirms these decrees. We mourn for the ways that humans have twisted his word to violate his image bearers, And we must take heed from that and take great caution to submit to the full counsel of God's word so that we might not distort it for selfish aims in our own lives. So when we take all of these patterns in mind, now we can ask, are Noah's words here prophetic? And what do they reveal about God? Well, very soon in Genesis, we do see God's confirmation of this curse. For instance, in chapter 15, God tells Abram that his people will inherit the land of the Canaanites, but not for another 400 years, because the sin of the Canaan's descendants had not yet reached its full corruption. Now remember, the original audience of Genesis, hearing this account, were the Israelites in the wilderness with Moses, and they were preparing to enter that promised land. The nations descending from Canaan confirmed their shattered relationship with the Lord. They were known for abominable practices, false worship, and really utter corruption. Surely their relationship with the true and holy God was shattered, and he decreed that their sin would be judged through Israel. While such a truly prophetic curse on a nation will be fulfilled, 
we do see that God extends mercies to individuals from that nation who turn to him, most notably is Rahab in the book of Joshua. Now, in just the next chapter, we see that the Lord, whom Noah blessed, was indeed in special relationship with the descendants of Shem. Through Shem, the one who sought a covering, will come the line of Abram in chapter 12. And through Abram will come Jesus Christ, the God-given sacrifice and covering for sin. And through him, all the nations of the world, all the Japheths who dwell under the covering of his tent, will be blessed. It might surprise us to see God use such humble vessels like a sinful human as the mouthpiece for his prophetic words. But God consistently uses what is most humble to showcase his perfect wisdom and knowledge. Above all, we see that God is sovereign. He has supreme authority to intend and direct the course of individual lives and human history toward his purposes. And what is that main ultimate purpose? It's his glory in the rescue and restoration of those who love him and of creation itself from the curse of sin and death. And that's coming through Jesus's life and death and resurrection, and then through his future reign over the new heavens and new earth, where this sin will be no more. Well, as we reach the close of this section, our hopes for a righteous restart after the flood with Noah and his descendants are clearly disappointed. As even in this one sole account that we get of their family, we already are see, goodness, death and sin and curses, and ultimately the death of Noah in verse 28. And we might be disheartened to see the depravity of sin prevail, not only in Noah's family, but in our own lives. But we can cling to this truth. God's sovereignty prevails over individual sin. God's sovereignty prevails over our individual sin. When we were first introduced to Noah as a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and yet here in this final account, it's full of shame and messy dynamics and the reality of sin that's just cascading through his descendants. What a beautiful thing then to look at Hebrews 11, that hall of faith, and see that it preserves Noah's legacy as a man of faith, of reverent fear of the Lord, and as an heir of the righteousness that comes, not by his own perfection, but by faith. Friends, our status before God is on the same basis as Noah. We're counted righteous by faith alone in Jesus Christ. This is really good news for all of us who daily wrestle with how to respond to our own sin and how to respond to the sin we encountered in the world. While we do grieve our sin, it does not need to totally dismay us because Jesus Christ has provided the covering for sin, and all who call on Him by faith will also be covered in His righteous status before God. In light of this truth, we should evaluate often before the Lord, what is covering your sin? Are you trying to earn God's blessing by performance? Do you fear feeling exposed before his presence? 
When we trust that God's sovereignty prevails over our sin, we are freed from the dread of his condemnation. In that peace, we can eagerly seek his spirit to change our desires, to empower us to lay aside every weight, every sin that hinders us from running freely after Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So now we're going to transition into our last division, and we're going to start with this genealogy that's preserved for us in chapter 10. So first we're going to see how the people of the whole earth were scattered from Noah's family tree. This genealogy is often referred to as the table of nations. And our notes this week give a very helpful picture of the many nations that formed from these sons, as well as the modern day regions that are associated with them. We see first in verses two through four that there's several generations of Japheth, Noah's youngest son, And it says his descendants became the peoples across the sea, which was most likely the Mediterranean. Then in verses 6 through 20, we find the sons of Ham. This genealogy highlights two sons in particular. We see special attention given to Nimrod and Canaan, both of whose descendants play very critical roles in Israelite story. I found that phrase very interesting in regard to Nimrod. It says, a mighty warrior, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Well, at first that phrasing might spark some assumptions of godliness to us. The cities associated with his kingdom, which include Babel and the future Babylon, uh, Nineveh and the land of the Philistines, all of these very infamous for their spiritual corruption. This reference and context is really interesting to note, especially given the upcoming rebellion that we're going to look like at the Tower of Babel. This section of genealogy then closes with Shem's descendants in verses 21 through 32. It's going to be Shem's line that we're going to trace um, throughout the rest of God's redemptive history. And it will bridge us next week to Abraham and then ultimately to the Messiah. If you were to attempt to read this genealogy out loud, which might be an interesting experiment, there would be one repeated phrase that does stand out. For instance, these are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. We were already told in chapter 9, 19, that from these sons, these three sons, all the people of the earth were scattered. So this raises the question, If all of these came from one family, how on earth did they end up with such a diversity of languages and cultures? It's like chapter 11 jumps back to fill in the backstory. So let's take a look. At verses 1 and 2, they're setting the stage. We see all of Noah's descendants have one language, the same words, and they've settled here in the land of Shinar. So, as we enter into this account of the people of this city, we're going to notice three things in particular. We're going to look at humanity's power, humanity's plans, and humanity's purposes. They're fairly well outlined in verses 3 and 4. In verse 3, we find a mankind unified with one resolve. They're going to pool their resources of human ingenuity and technology, the brick, to fulfill their plans of building up a tower to reach the heavens. 
The structure was most likely a ziggurat, a stair-step ascending structure that was commonly used to worship deities. And what's the purpose behind these plans? Their aim is to make a name for themselves so that they might not be scattered over the face of the earth. Now, I was thinking about this. For many readers today, that all might sound relatively benign. And I'm thinking the reason that we're not more astounded by this is because our entire culture functions under that same system of thought. If we think about it, apart from God's intervention, human sin just drives us toward this kind of humanistic functioning, a prideful independence from our Creator and His purposes for His creation. This picture of human progress is really an extension of the rebellion and futility that has gripped mankind since Eve first grasped for autonomy. When we contrast these efforts and motives with the grand plans and purposes of humanity's creator, this united rebellion against God comes into sharper view. So the people of Babel say, Come, let us use these powerful resources to make a name for ourselves and steer the course of our destiny in a direction that makes us great and powerful and secure. But let's contrast that. If we look at Acts 17, we will see God's power and His plans and His purposes, which extend over the people of Babel and all mankind. Let's hear of his power first. In Acts 17, we see the God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples made by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he gives everyone life and breath and everything else. And here his plans. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. For what purpose? It says God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is actually not far from any one of us for in him we live and move and have our being. What a foolish tragedy to see his image bearers attempt to steer their own destiny apart from a sovereign God who has beautifully planned every aspect of their being that we might seek and find him. So what is God's response to humanity's resolve to abandon his aims for their own? In verse 5, we find the heart of this story. Though he allowed this building project to commence for a time, it does not mean that he is far off or unaware. The Lord came down. <laughs> he had to descend to see the tower that they thought could reach the heavens. It says he, he came down to see the tower that mankind had built. We saw this pattern in the creation story. When God sees something, he evaluates it with true authority. He alone defines what's truly good for the creatures he's made. And in verse 6, he gives his assessment. The Lord said, If as one people, speaking the same language, they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. 
Here, God's sovereignty mercifully overrules the resolve of sinful humanity. He reigns, and he reigns in perfect wisdom and justice and mercy. He sees his image bearers yet again on the freight train of sin, and it will collectively barrel off the tracks if they're left to themselves. So, in an action of judgment and yet mercy, he executes his plans to preserve his sovereign and good purposes. In verses 7 through 8, we see he confuses their language and scatters them all over all the face of the earth. This fulfills his initial intent for mankind to fill the earth, and it also sets in motion his plan to bless the nations through one man, Jesus Christ. The principle we can learn from this division is that God's sovereignty prevails over the resolve of even nations. Does this account of Babel sound a lot like our current culture? We live within the same cultural mantra that says we must define our own destiny, we must use our own power, we must create and run after our own purpose. So, knowing that this kind of humanistic thinking pervades our world, we should diligently search our hearts with the Lord to ensure that we're not drifting away from God's anchor for us. In every task and decision and goal, we can ask, whose power am I depending on in this moment? My own effort or God's Spirit? What's defining the plans that I'm pursuing right now? What purpose am I seeking to fulfill? Am I trying to make a name for myself or glorify the fathers? If by faith you have come under the covering of Jesus' sacrifice, his spirit is transforming you to abandon the world's view of plans and purposes and instead to live for God's eternal kingdom. This is a beautiful grace that we are not left to anxiously build up towers to reach the heavens. We're not left to try to establish our own sense of security. The King of Heaven has descended to us to place us securely in the Father's hand. We're not left trying to make a name for ourselves through this vapor of a life. Jesus, the name above all names, has called us to die to self now, but yet be exalted with Him for eternity. So, be thinking, especially in a very weighty week for our nation, what are the places that you're prone to feeling shaken by what is out of your control? How does the banner of God's sovereignty over your life, this week, this nation, the course of history, grant you an anchor and cause you to worship in the place of fear? His purposes will prevail, and they will culminate in the restoration of all things, where we will worship Jesus with his people from every nation, tribe, and tongue forever. Let me pray. God, what can we do but be in awe of your sovereignty? to be in awe that you have preserved us from our own sin, from the sin of nations, and that you have provided a covering for our sin 
that we might see you exalted in your fullness. We praise you that these things are not left to chance or the direction of human will or nations, but that all of these things are fixed by your perfect wisdom and justice and mercy. I pray that this week, when we're prone to feeling shaken by events of our lives or this nation, that you would anchor us with your truth, that you are sovereign. Would the peace that that brings just radiate through us and bring glory to your Son um, as we interact with the people in our world this week. Jesus, in your name that I pray. Amen.